from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, May 22nd. I'm Marco Werman. Europe has a massive unemployment problem, but Australia has more jobs than workers, as this guy found out at a recruiting fair in Houston. I've heard from multiple people that, you know, you can make this kind of money in Australia, and so I'm just here to find that out. I mean, apparently a lot of other people have heard that too. And later, Olympic torches wind up on eBay and what that says about Britain's torch bearers. If they're happy to actually not have a torch in the corner of their living room or on their fireplace, you know, I guess that's personal preference. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Greece can't catch a break as the country gears up for new elections to try and solve its political economic crisis. Here comes more bad news. Today, the Athens Stock Exchange dropped to its lowest level in 22 years. The value of Greek shares has now fallen by almost 90 percent since 2008. A caretaker government in Athens continues to look for ways to prevent Greece from defaulting on the terms of its euro bailout. Dimitris Droutsas was foreign minister in the Greek government that negotiated that bailout and enacted harsh austerity measures. He's glad to hear European leaders talking more about growth now. Finally, we hear in the European Union the necessary voices who say austerity measures are not enough. We have to support those measures by measures that will promote economic uh, growth. In order to achieve economic growth in Greece, we have to radically reform Greek public administration. If you want, we have to reinvent public administration in Greece. Then we will see that also the austerity measures will show effects and results. And then we will have economic growth in Greece, which is really achievable. A lot of economists, you know, say Greece is handicapped from years of mismanagement. How do you build on a negative number? If we have the necessary structural reforms in Greece, then we will see light at the end of uh, the tunnel. In the past two years, we had a huge, a very severe austerity program that was uh, imposed on Greece. It is like taking the training program of Usain Bolt, the world record man in the 100-meter sprint, and try to use this for an amateur athlete. Uh, What are the odds that the amateur athlete will uh, break the world record or that he will be exhausted? This is what happened with Greece. This is the reality. Austerity is necessary, and nobody in Greece denies this. But we need another kind of program and more time to implement what is necessary. Mr. Drutsas, what is at the root of this crisis in Greece? Greece was living above its standards with borrowed money. We see, unfortunately, a very high extent of corruption in our public administration in Greece. And this is what 
people uh, were very frustrated about. This was also the anger. And this is why in the recent elections, uh, we saw the two uh, former biggest uh, political parties, uh, the Socialist Party and uh, the Conservative Party, they were presented the bill by the voters saying, we have to change our political system in Greece. I'd like to know what you make of the rise of extremist parties in Greece, both on the left and the right. I really feel very, very bad about the fact that a right radical party, I will say it openly, a neo-Nazi party was able to get into the Greek parliament. I hope that uh, my fellow Greek citizens will reconsider in the next elections their vote and will make this party disappear again from the Greek parliament. We have to think about the future generations. And here one word is very, very important, unemployment, and especially the high rates of youth unemployment, which is a ticking bomb for the whole of Europe. And here we need, as responsible politicians, to take sincere and efficient measures to combat that. Dimitris Drutsas is a member of the European Parliament for the Socialist Party PASOK. He's the former Greek foreign minister and joined us from a session of the European Parliament in Strasbourg. Thank you very much, Mr. Drutsas. I thank you. So not enough jobs in Europe at the moment. Hard to believe, but there are places out there where the problem is not enough workers. If you're an American plumber or a civil engineer and want to double your salary... Well, this next story is for you. You just have to be willing to relocate by about 10,000 miles. The world's Jason Margolis has more. If you live in Texas, you may have heard this radio ad. G'day, mate. Australia is calling you. And this is your invitation to register now for the Aussie Jobs Fair in Houston, May 19th and 20th. If you're a skilled worker in oil, gas, mining, or construction, then Australia has a job for you. Several hundred men came to the Aussie Jobs Fair, held at a Houston hotel. Can I get a copy of your CV? That would be fantastic. Representatives from Australian companies were on hand, as well as government officials. Job applicants were encouraged to apply for either multi-year or even permanent visas. We're uh, not that fussy at the moment, I have to say. Our focus is really trying to get the best people for as long as we can get them. That's Peter Speldewind. He runs Australia's skilled migration program for the Department of Immigration and Citizenship. He says Australia badly needs a labor injection. That's largely to support the country's booming mineral sector. Australia has a lot of valuable stuff in the ground and a neighbor, China, that's willing to pay top dollar to get it. Speldewin has been staging job fairs throughout the world. And we picked Houston because, oh, for a number of reasons, we know that the skill sets here are exactly what Australian employers are looking for. We are hoping that some of these people will look at a time in Australia as an opportunity to enhance their, their CVs. And get a bigger paycheck. 27-year-old Chase Thompson works on pipelines in Texas. I've heard from multiple people that, you know, you can make this kind of money in Australia, and so I'm just here to find that out. I mean, apparently a lot of other people have heard that too. I asked Thompson if he could put what he's heard into a number. For my position, up to $20,000, 25000 a month. Can, can I ask what you currently make, how that compares? Uh, eight to ten a month, eight to 10000 So, I mean, it's dramatic. I'd also heard the stories of young men striking it rich when I was recently in Australia. For example, boilermakers earning $150,000 a year. 
Paul Howes, National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, told me my source didn't get it quite right. Well, at the moment, if they're a boiler maker earning 150 grand, they're underpaid because they're earning about double that. Howes said these salaries reflect basic supply and demand. And now Australia has no short-term option but to import its tradespeople. In terms of bankers and lawyers, at the moment they're a dime a dozen. Uh, you know, and I would argue that one boilermaker at the moment is worth 10 lawyers for our economy. Um, and that's the reality. Have you had a look into migrating to Australia? Have you had a look? OK, back to Houston. Between Australia's big paychecks and the fragile American economy, I thought this room would be filled with desperate job seekers. Not so. I didn't meet a single person who was out of work or even struggling to find work. I heard the joke that if you can spell the word engineer, you can find a job in Houston these days. This civil engineer asked me not to use his name. His boss listens to public radio, and he doesn't want him to know he's out looking for a new job. He said he was lured here by the prospect of more money and a little adventure. My wife and I have often talked about looking at relocating temporarily just to see a bit more of the world. But a lot of the places where those opportunities are are a bit too much of a culture shock for her. You know, going to China or going to India or the Middle East is just a bit, a bit off the deep end from, from Houston. But he says Australia? Yeah, that would work. Ideally one of the cosmopolitan East Coast cities, namely Sydney, Melbourne or Brisbane. Unfortunately, that's not where the jobs are. Engineers and skilled tradespeople are mostly needed in Australia's hot, dusty, lonely interior. It isn't all rosy and beaches and surfing and, um, and bikinis. Sarah Bly, who was in Houston recruiting for these contractors, wants people to know what they're signing up for. We do need to be realistic to people about um, the environment they will be living and working in, away all the time during the week and only home on the weekends. And um, it's, it's not a bad lifestyle, but if you're not aware of that when you go into it, then yes, I think it wouldn't be sustainable. Still, if Americans want these jobs, best to apply soon. The Australian government has ramped up investment for training homegrown vocational workers. In a few years, those Australians should be ready to help fill the labor shortage. In the meantime, there is another kind of job applicant Australia wants, trained military personnel. It's cheaper for the Aussies to hire experienced jet pilots than train them themselves. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Houston. There are no openings left for the job of London 2012 Olympic torchbearer. 8,000 people have already been selected to carry the Olympic flame around the U.K. in the lead-up to this summer's Games. This was day four of the massive relay. Each runner gets to keep the torch, though some have other ideas, as the world's Clark Boyd reports. Today, the Olympic flame was making its way to Bristol. On the live torch relay cam, each runner smiled and the crowds cheered. You have to be nominated to carry the torch, and you do have to shell out a few hundred bucks for the torch in the official relay outfit. Still, it's a great honor, right? Well, not so much that a few torchbearers aren't trying to cash in. A quick search of eBay's UK site shows a number of official torches for sale. For one, the current bid is more than $55,000. 19-year-old Jason Murphy was a torchbearer, and he's not happy that some of his comrades are selling. You are a torchbearer? And I think you should bear that for life because you are there to look after that torch. You've had the privilege of setting, passing that flame on. I think it's very disappointing that people are selling that torch off. Other torchbearers are a bit more understanding. Richard Burbage suffers from cystic fibrosis and underwent a double lung transplant. He personally wouldn't sell the torch he carried, 
but he sees why others might. You know, if someone is, is content with a memory from the day of the fact that they've carried the torch and if they're happy to actually not have a torch, you know, in the corner of their living room or on their fireplace or wherever they choose to have it at their home, at the end of it, then, you know, I guess that's personal preference, to be honest. Charity. That's why Sophia Coburn put her torch up on eBay. She says she wanted to raise money for a good cause. For me personally, the charity Invictus is very, very close to my heart. It was set up in memory of my brother. And I wouldn't have got the opportunity to run with the torch had I not set up the charity with my family and kind of been representing it. So for me to be able to give something back, it's a massive, massive thing. By the way, when the bidding closed on Coburn's torch, it appeared that the winning bid was more than $180,000. But the bid, it turns out, was a fake. Others running for charity think it might be better to keep the torch, take it to schools and community centers to raise awareness. Julia Eminen will carry the torch in the coming days for charity. I absolutely won't be parting company with it. I just think it kind of belittles the spirit of the games. One thing's for sure, with 8,000 runners and 8,000 torches potentially for sale, the chance of making money, for charity or otherwise, may be decreasing sharply in the days ahead. For its part, the London Olympic Organizing Committee has said that the torches are the personal property of the individual runners, and it was their choice to do with them as they wanted. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. All this week, we are broadcasting a special series on class. Later in the hour, we'll hear about class in post-revolution Egypt and Ukraine. Many of you have already added your perspectives to the conversation. If you haven't, check in on our Facebook page or look on Twitter using the hashtag BeyondClass. We also have some class-themed crossword puzzles on our website. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Here's a question for today's GeoQuiz. Where would you find some three-and-a-half billion-year-old stromatolites? They're some of Earth's oldest rock formations created back when volcanoes were erupting across the planet and the oceans were hot. The remote Pilbara region of Western Australia is a good place to start looking. Sandstone rocks discovered there about a year ago are believed to contain fossils of the earliest living cells. And they're about to go on display at Houston's Natural History Museum, along with some bigger creatures that came along a little later in the Earth's evolution. We'll talk T-Rexes and Triceratops with the museum's curator of paleontology in a few minutes. First, you have to name the area in Western Australia where the exhibit's stromatolites come from. South Africa's president, Jacob Zuma, has a reputation for being promiscuous. He currently has four wives and has fathered at least 21 children by them and other women. So no surprise, perhaps, that artists might highlight that side of Zuma. A painting of the president entitled The Spear has generated a lot of controversy since going on display earlier this month in South Africa. It depicts Zuma in a triumphant stance with what appear to be his genitals on display. 
The painting has incensed Zuma's party, the African National Congress, and today protesters defaced the painting and blotted out the offending organ. BBC's Milton and Cozy was there, and Milton, tell us what happened. While I was there, two men who were also in the gallery walking around looking at other works of art suddenly took out small tins of paint and began to deface the portrait. And who are these men? Nobody knows exactly, but one of the gentlemen who looks middle-aged, who was wearing a dark gray jacket, uh, looked very respectable, looked professorial for me. As far as I was concerned, he looked very professorial. Uh, but there is no clear indication as to who they were. It was one elderly gentleman of Caucasian descent and one younger gentleman of African descent. Now, the exhibition at the Goodman Gallery is entitled Hail to the Thief 2. Why is that and what do the other works in the gallery represent? Well, the artist is a man called uh, Brett Murray. He's known for his shocking work of arts. And in this exhibition, he has uh, put together a whole lot of paintings and um, uh, sculptures about the uh, African National Congress, the governing party in South Africa, and how they have changed their values since they came to power after the end of apartheid. Mm. Remember now, Marco, that during apartheid, the African National Congress were fighting a just struggle and they had noble causes. So everybody supported them and now is a party that is chasing money, power, and, of course, sex. Now, as for the motivation uh, of the vandals uh, who destroyed this painting of Jacob Zuma, it's notable that one of them started to spray paint the word respect on the wall of the gallery before being stopped. He shouted that the painting disrespected the president. How widespread is that feeling in South Africa? The feeling is widespread across the length and breadth of South Africa. Many people who've been uh, voicing their concerns in the newspapers, the local radio stations, in the buses and taxis across South Africa have said that this is un-African, irrespective of what the president's faults may be, and he does have many, but there is no one who has a right to take away his right to dignity, which is also enshrined in the Constitution. So the argument, by and large, throughout the country is that this was rude, uncouth, and disrespectful to the president, but also not just to him as the president of the republic, to him as a father, as a grandfather, and also as an elderly statesman of the country. The BBC's Milton and Cozy speaking with us from Johannesburg, South Africa. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Marco. Back to our GeoQuiz now and that new exhibit that's about to open at the Houston Museum of Natural Science. Robert Bacher is curator of paleontology there. So let's start with the rare fossil skeleton of the T-Rex that'll be part of this exhibit. Apparently it's not the teeth or size, but it's hands that are interesting to you, Dr. Bacher. Why is that? Oh, everyone loves T-Rex hands because T-Rex has a huge head and huge hind legs and a huge tail and a huge neck, but tiny, tiny little fingers. And we've got the best set of fingers ever found in a T-Rex. Why did it end up with such small fingers for such a Herculean monster? Well, the original idea, this goes back over 100 years, came from Professor Osborne in the New York Museum. He found T-Rex, he named T-Rex, but, but, he sees these tiny hands on a giant predator and he thinks, you know, 
a giant predator has to have some way of expressing a kinder thought because you have to attract mates mm. and you've got to bond with your chicks and you can't do that by biting them. <laughs> so his idea, and I think it's right, was these tiny delicate fingers were for stroking and for tickling. Who knew T-Rex had that side? You've got an unusual triceratops oh, yeah. fossil. It's the number one favorite veggie store, plant-eating dinosaur worldwide. It's great. But you hardly ever get feet. Feet get chewed off by scavengers. We have nearly perfect feet. And this thing was a mutter. It's got these gigantic spreading paws <laughs> like swamp tires. It's got some of the skin tissue actually preserved in the hide. And so how does skin and feet for Triceratops change your view of this dinosaur? Everyone who's ever drawn a picture of a live Triceratops or sculpted a model, and I've done both, it's a popular critter, have been wrong. We mm. have portrayed Triceratops as being naked covered with naked scales. It does have scales, but they were not naked. They were things growing out of the scales, long, skinny things like bristles. Let's get to the answer, Dr. Bacher, to the geoquiz now. Uh, what is the oldest fossil in your new exhibit, and where does it come from? We have some wonderful fragments of fossilized slime, microbial mats, things even simpler than bacteria that were among the earliest living cells. And these mats trap sediment. So these microbes built up a mound. We call them stromatolites. And ours are from Strelly Pool, Australia. And they're over 3.4 billion, with a B, billion years old. Wow. Even though they are 3.5 billion years old, they had in their chemical machinery inside the cell the basics of what we have inside our cells. Yeah, we're all traceable back to Aussie slime. I'm going to have to tweet that. And I gather you'll be able to actually touch these uh, fossilized yes. slime? Absolutely. We believe in, in touching. You can touch a bit of billion-year-old slime, and you can touch a T-Rex tooth, and you can touch a piece of triceratops. We have what's called touch cards. You, the visitor, can um, get in tactile connection with these wonderful prehistoric monsters. Strelly Pool in Western Australia is a source to those uh, uh, stromatolites, or microbial slime. Robert Bacher, curator of paleontology at the Houston Museum of Natural Science. Its new dinosaur exhibit opens in just days. Dr. Bacher, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, revolutions and the tipping point when the middle class gets involved. Suddenly, everybody understood that it's the moment that you can decide and you have to take part. And it was very new feeling. Our series on class continues ahead on the world. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is the eve of historic elections in Egypt. It's the first time in the country's history that voters have a real opportunity to choose their president freely. Thirteen candidates are in the race, and the outcome is far from clear. But the leading figures are Islamists and former regime officials. The world's Matthew Bell is in Cairo. Matthew, what's the mood like today? Uh, the mood is excitement. A lot of people are really excited about voting tomorrow. Um, there's, at the same time, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uncertainty about the process and about even what the role of the president will be uh, that they're going to be voting for. But genuinely, you just go around town, you see the posters everywhere. Everyone's talking about the election. People are asking each other, who are you voting for? There's a real excitement in the air. And after years of one-party rule in Egypt, for all intents and purposes, remind us what the importance of this presidential election really is. Well, of course, you had Hosni Mubarak, who was in power for 30 years. He started to groom his son, Gamal. Many Egyptians believe that he was going to be the the next leader of the country, uh, which really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Um, Events started in January of last year, um, really uh, it was hard to predict. You know, there, there weren't many people at all that saw this this coming when it did. I got here the night before the Tahrir Square was really taken for good on that Friday of January 28th uh, last year. And mm. even p- activists told me, we're just not sure what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, I think it surprised a lot of people. And here we are, um, you know, decades in the making. Uh, many people have confidence that at least this is going to be an election that where their vote is going to count and that and the potential is there for some good to come out of it. Right. I mean, when you think about the evolution from the past uh, year, it's pretty extraordinary. Tomorrow on the ballot, 13 candidates. Is there a clear front runner? Um, the polls are not very reliable, but there are four or five candidates that are considered to be the front runners that more people are talking about. There's more attention on them in the media and, and just in my experience talking to people uh, th- these names definitely come up. I should say too, Marco, that there is a minority of people who aren't happy about the election. Some of the activists that took part in the revolution last year, they see this as illegitimate because it's all happening under military rule that they see a direct line from Mubarak to the military. They feel that this this transition has been a disaster and they don't want to give legitimacy to to the military rulers by taking part in this vote. But, but again, they, they're definitely a minority. Now, an Egyptian court, Matthew, sentenced five policemen to 10 years each in prison today for their role in killing protesters in the uprising that toppled Hosni Mubarak. It's the first such conviction against the force that was blamed for hundreds of deaths. How important is this sentencing, especially as it comes on the eve of this auspicious election? I think it's significant, Marco. The The martyrs, as they call them, the, the people who were killed during that 18-day revolution are, are definitely talked about with a, a sense of real reverence here. At, at many demonstrations around the country, people will have uh, family members of the martyrs will be there and there'll be signs and, and people will talk about, about the martyrs and, and talk about the need for justice uh, for them, for their family members. And and the police force is is a very much hated institution here in Egypt, um, has been for a long time, not just since the revolution. So it, on the one hand, this is significant, but I think a lot of people will be frustrated because it took so long for these convictions to happen. Uh, more than 800 people were killed, as you mentioned, and here is, is a handful uh, of these guys that have been convicted at this point. 
The world's Matthew Bell speaking to us from Cairo on the eve of a historic presidential vote there. And actually, we're going to come back to Matthew in Cairo in just a bit, this time in the context of our series this week, Beyond Class. Today, we're focusing on the nexus between revolutions like the one in Egypt and the middle class. Series editor Patrick Cox joins me now. And Patrick, we'll be hearing two stories, right? One from Egypt and the other from Ukraine. That's right. And they have a common thread. We're going to be hearing about the lives of two women who both helped change their countries at considerable risk to themselves. These women, they were both in their 20s when they each felt drawn to take to the streets. In Egypt last year, of course, with the fall of Hosni Mubarak, and in Ukraine eight years ago with the Orange Revolution. And, And we wanted to find out just exactly what it takes in the 21st century for someone who is a part of the middle class, who has a lot to lose, who what pushes them over the edge so they don't show up for work and instead they head down to a square in the center of the capital and surrounded by soldiers or police officers, they demand democratic change. Okay, so first to Egypt, where the middle class is quite large and diverse. Yes, it's true that in all of the Arab Spring protest movements, there have been reports of middle class people, doctors, lawyers, teachers, office workers, reports of them joining the protests, sometimes even organizing protests. But in Egypt, the middle class is particularly large and, and more established than in many of the other Arab Spring countries. And there are a whole range of views among them, competing views in many cases, not, not just what we may think of as liberal revolutionaries. There are Islamists, there are business-minded people, there are people connected to the military and the huge sector of the economy that they control. So on the streets during those 18 days last year, before Mubarak was forced to step down, there was no majority view about what should come next. Right, Patrick. So back now to Cairo, where the world's Matthew Bell has spent time with a middle-class family over the past seven months. When I first met 26-year-old Maram Kaf, she was living and breathing the revolution. A mutual acquaintance, a political activist, put me in touch with her. Maram and I arranged to meet at an upscale supermarket in the Cairo suburb where Maram lives with her mother. The area is called Mo'atam, a 30-minute drive from downtown Cairo. It's urban but comfortable with rows of apartment buildings, nice retail shops, restaurants. The apartment Maram and her mom share has the middle-class essentials, wireless internet, shelves of books in Arabic and English, and a nice view from the seventh-floor living room window. If the weather's clear, you can just make out two ancient pyramids in the distance. Maram tells me she first got involved with political activism after January 25, 2011. That's the day the demonstrations started. I was at work doing nothing, just sitting like that on my Blackberry. Following the protests on Twitter, two days later, Maram and her mother decided they would join in. And we started, like, buying stuff. We we bought masks and we bought... We started reading because um, people from Tunisia were giving us advice. Like, do this, don't do that. Bring Pepsi with you. It helps with the tear gas. We packed one backpack and medical supplies and stuff like that. Along with thousands of other middle-class Egyptians on that Friday morning last year, Maram and her mother went to a Cairo mosque. They were ready to risk arrest, injury, or worse. They were ready to speak the unspeakable and publicly call for Hosni Mubarak to step down. As soon as the prayers ended, a man stood up and shouted, The people want to bring down the regime. And the first few times I couldn't shout, I couldn't shout because I was so welled up with tears 
I couldn't. I wasn't. I wasn't able to talk. For the and then after that, we were just like walking and police. It was surreal. That first day, Madame says she and her mom marched toward Tahrir Square. All afternoon, demonstrators clashed with riot police. They saw dozens of people with injuries, including someone they knew who was shot in the face and nearly lost an eye. Eventually, the tear gas got to be too much, and they retreated to a friend's house. For the next two weeks, Madame and her mother went back and forth, from home to feed the cat and change their clothes, to Tahrir Square to be part of the protests. When she went back to the office at the bank where she works, Madame says most of her co-workers told her they disapproved of what she and the revolutionaries were trying to do. We were three revolutionaries in the whole floor, and everyone was just looking at us like we had the Black Plague or something. Like, yeah. <laughs> what did they say? Yeah, they were like, oh, you're revolutionaries. You're going to um, corrupt the country. You're going to, uh, to bring chaos and stuff like that. Just like Mubarak said? Yeah, yeah. And what would you say to them? When you have a rotten house, you have to demolish it all before you start anew. You have to have chaos to, to have a really good government. But powerful forces in Egypt were pushing back. At the end of the evening of our first meeting, Maram drove me through Tahrir Square, giving me a running commentary. The military had just cleared the area of demonstrators. There were rows of armed soldiers, riot police, and their vehicles putting on a real show of force. Violating her home, she says, because during the revolution, Tahrir felt like the safest place in all of Egypt. So that was last summer. Moram was still very much engaged in the revolution. She was going to demonstrations and watching lots of political talk shows on TV. But at the same time, she seemed to be feeling that the spirit of the revolution was coming under threat and pulling back slightly. Iman Ezzedin, Moram's mother, lectures in drama and criticism at Cairo's Ain Shams University. She's 55 years old, with hair that's light enough in color for some Egyptians to mistake her as a foreigner. She grew up in the well-off Cairo neighborhood of Heliopolis. When the revolution began last January, she was not entirely new to protesting. She had taken part in a campaign at the university to oust regime police from campus. But going into the streets to call for regime change was something very different and much more risky, as Adine knew she could lose her job. But she felt there was no choice. And after those 18 days of protests that brought down Mubarak, as Adine says she and her daughter, along with so many Egyptians, achieved something that can never be taken away. I think it's nothing but dignity. And dignity, it's worth it. I think it was either you live in dignity or you don't deserve to live. Yes, because, you know, other things, it's nothing you can achieve, you know, in weeks. Uh, For example, um, salaries, uh, you know, better education, better health. You You can't have it in six months. It's... It's ridiculous to, you know, to speak about something like that. Ezzedine knows she's part of a political minority in Egypt. She's a Muslim, doesn't wear a headscarf. She's not particularly religious. She's a divorced and still single career woman. Ezzedine says her whole lifestyle might be threatened by the Islamists who now dominate Egyptian politics. 
That lifestyle is unquestionably middle class. But Egypt's middle class also includes deeply conservative Muslims. They played their part in last November's parliamentary elections. Islamist parties won 70% of the seats. Plenty of middle-class liberals, as Adin says, now feel the revolution was a mistake because the Egyptian military and the Islamists are firmly in control. But as Adin says, she and like-minded people should not be defeatist. We are, uh, we are less in number, but, uh, but maybe we will depend on the loud voice. It's just like in the parliament. Those liberals who are uh, calling for a civil society and so on, they are the minority, but they have a loud voice. So um, I'm saying that I will use my loud voice. Ah! <laughs> Over time, I stay in touch with Ezzedine and her daughter, Maram Kaf. They go through highs and lows. Seven months after I first met her, Maram talks about Egypt's first free elections, and she says in some ways they were a success. Lots of people participated, and there was little violence. But Maram says the new Egyptian parliament is a bit of a joke. Sadly, sometimes it's more of a comedic show than anything, but then I try to remember that this is our first trial at democracy, our first trial at a real parliament that was quote-unquote really elected by the people. I, I think it, it's important for us to stay hopeful and to stay positive and to try to see what good it could happen from all of this chaos. Maram says she's planning to vote in the upcoming presidential election. She's disappointed that the liberal favorite, Mohamed El-Baradai, has decided not to run, so she's not sure who she'll vote for yet. The truth is, Maram says, the middle class in Egypt has a lot to worry about these days, including a very shaky economy. I should have been promoted this year, and I wasn't promoted. I should have had a raise. I didn't get a raise. And it's easy to just say, oh, it's the revolution. Because, frankly, it is because of the revolution, but you shouldn't just look at this year's bonus or this year's raise. You should look at, if this is done right, our children will have a better life in everything. When she invites me out to dinner and drinks with friends, Maram jokes about needing to get out and have a drink now before the Islamists make alcohol illegal in Egypt. She's kidding about the rise of the Islamists, mostly, but politics hardly comes up at dinner, and that's a big change. Maram rarely goes to demonstrations these days, and she doesn't stay up late watching political talk shows on TV anymore. Maram says she gets frustrated about where Egypt is headed and whether there's a place in it for her. She thinks maybe she'll just drop everything and leave Egypt altogether. She could move to Canada, where her dad lives. But then she doesn't want to give up on the ideals of Tahrir Square. Dignity, freedom, opportunity. So for now, Maram Kaf says she's just trying to keep her expectations realistic. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Cairo. You can see pictures of Maram at theworld.org. In just a bit, we'll meet another middle-class activist. The revolution she participated in was eight years ago in Ukraine. We'll hear how she and her country have fared since then. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Goat Rodeo. Follow cellist Yo-Yo Ma and friends on a musical journey full of lively, unscripted bluegrass melodies. Friday, May 25th at 9, 8 central on PBS.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We continue now with our focus on middle-class revolutionaries. From Egypt, we switch to Ukraine, where the revolution is a little less fresh in the mind. It took place in 2004. Our reporter for this story is Julia Barton. On a recent morning, Elena Korshil drives along Krushchatik, the main boulevard through downtown Kiev. Elena's driving her Mitsubishi Colt to her job running a TV production company. She's 32, blonde and willowy. Like many Ukrainian professionals, she speaks several languages. Where are we going? To Maidan? We pull over on the wide sidewalk near Maidan Nezalezhnosti, which means Independence Square. It's been called that since 1991, when Ukraine won independence from the Soviet Union. And here, eight years ago, Elena tells me she felt her life change for good. Suddenly, at one moment, uh, everybody understood that it's the moment that you can decide and you have to take part. And it was uh, very new for me, for example, and I think for many people. Elena's talking about Ukraine's Orange Revolution. In November 2004, she was among thousands who crowded into the square to protest results of the presidential election. Elena and her husband had driven all over Kiev to paste flyers on bus stops. The flyers said, Don't go to work, just go to Maidan uh, tomorrow because it's our last chance. Elena and the other protesters believed the vote had been rigged in favor of a pro-Russia candidate. After two weeks of protests, the Ukrainian government allowed new elections to take place. And that time, opposition candidate Viktor Yushchenko won. Elena was thrilled. And for about a year, she says, the country seemed transformed. But slowly, she says, the energy of the Orange Revolution faded. Three years ago, Ukrainians elected the pro-Russia candidate who'd been defeated in the Orange Revolution. Viktor Yanukovych. The new government has put some Orange Revolution leaders in jail. That's upset the European Union and upset middle-class Ukrainians who want more links with Western Europe. At this point, Elena is both frustrated and defiant. I don't think that we lost because you never lost your experience. You never lose your experience. If you lived the experience, so you have that and this is yours. Meanwhile, Elena's own life has changed a lot since those heady days of protest. Elena now has two children. They live in an apartment in central Kiev in a hundred-year-old building. Elena and her husband got a bank loan to buy the apartment and renovate it. They took out all of the Soviet-era touches. The closet-sized bathroom became a closet. And the old kitchen became the bathroom. It's very great to have a bathroom. Because bathroom, you have to have a room <laughs> to have a bathroom with a window. And uh, so big, it's like um, extraordinary. Elena says for herself and her circle of friends, this is how they define middle class. Having enough money to own an apartment and a car and to travel abroad. She and her family live comfortably, but Elena's husband, Dennis, says this sense of comfort pretty much ends at their front door. Dennis says what's lacking for the middle class is any kind of social protection, as far as health care is concerned or the legal system. And what's more, he says, government bureaucracy makes it hard to run a business. He should know. He's co-owner of a public relations firm. 
He says things are getting more corrupt again under the Yanukovych regime. More people are talking about how it's becoming pointless to live here, Dennis says, and it would be better to leave. But he and Elena have no plans to go. They care too deeply about Ukraine. After their children were born, Dennis even switched from his native Russian to speaking Ukrainian all the time. Dennis says this means his wife will usually get the upper hand when they argue, since she's a native Ukrainian speaker. Elena grew up in a provincial city. Her mother was a pediatrician and her father an engineer. They were solidly middle class. Except this was the Soviet Union, so the middle class didn't really exist. Elena remembers going to Soviet military parades with her family. From somewhere, my father brought uh, these balloons, and that was like it was like a miracle. These balloons, I liked it very much. Balloons felt like a miracle because her parents didn't have much. In 1991, when Ukraine became a new country, they suddenly had even less. My parents uh, were not paid uh, on their work, and it was like very difficult. There was no money, like there's no money at all. Just there's no money, <laughs> and uh, that's all. Still, Elena's parents insisted that she go to a good school in Kiev. Elena paid her rent in the city by bringing food from the countryside on a two-hour train ride. It eventually paid off. Elena got into university in Kiev and started working as a journalist. Within ten years, she went from hauling plucked chickens on the train to being a national TV editor. Like her country, Elena's been running full tilt for twenty years. She needed determination and energy to succeed in the face of historic change, but now things have started to slow down, and Elena's not sure she likes that. She describes her current state, half humorously, as a kind of stagnation, an existential crisis. Because uh, everything has happened already. Exciting as her life has been, Elena doesn't want her children to feel the same pressures that she did. Her daughter Sonia, who's six. Has a mobile phone, and three-year-old Marcus knows how to navigate a laptop computer. After Sonia asked for a dog for three years, Elena got her one. She has to experience that uh, dreams. Uh, if you want something, dreams come true. Just to experience this uh, in her life. And in the children's bedroom, the floor is covered in balloons. For the world, I'm Julia Barton, Kiev. So, Patrick Cox, editor of the series Beyond Class, it's、uh, apparent that it's not just the downtrodden who force change; it's the middle class too. But what about the liabilities of relying on the middle class to keep the goals of any revolution alive? Well, every country needs its middle class—the people you know who own stuff like cars and savings, and well, as we heard, bathrooms. It, it、mm. helps stabilize things. And the middle class may be needed in those difficult years after the revolution just as much, and that I think is where the two stories that we heard differ a little bit、mm. from one another. You know, in Ukraine, it sounds as though Elena is very much settled; she's not going anywhere, even though that she's hugely disappointed with the direction our country's taken. But with Maram in Egypt, well, it sounds like she's more on the fence. Right? Will she stay or will she go? Okay, so tomorrow's show, Patrick. What are we going to be hearing about? Well, we have a couple of stories on the Indian tradition of organizing society through caste. We're going to be hearing from India and also from Indian immigrants here in the United States and from their children who are being raised in a country where caste is totally meaningless. Patrick, thanks a lot. You're welcome, Marco. You can see all the people featured in our series Beyond Class. We have portraits at theworld.org. That's where you'll also find our class-themed crossword puzzles.
Not enough time for a global hit today, but since we're India-bound tomorrow, here's another taste of a group we recently featured on the program that pleased you listeners. This is from the debut CD by the Bombay Royale. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by contributors to the PRI Program Fund and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International